This week, I'm joined by Sean Kelly, who is a professor of philosophy, cosmology, and consciousness at the California Institute of Integral Studies. In this episode, we discuss his book, Becoming Gaia, on the threshold of planetary initiation, alongside discussions on climate change, the work of Bruno Latour, Gaia, integral philosophy, and more. I'd like to say a big thank you to all my paid patrons and subscribers for making all of this work possible. And if you would like to support Omitics and gain access to some exclusive content, then please find links in the description below. Otherwise, please enjoy. So, Sean Kelly, thanks very much for joining us on Hermetics Podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here, James. Uh, we're going to be discussing your book, Becoming Gaia, on the threshold of planetary initiation, which is... Uh, one of the best subtitles for a philosophy book I've read in recent years. I think it's fantastic. Uh, this book is is about 200 pages long, and it's one of those texts which is positively, I've described a few texts like this, but positively dense in the amount of ideas that are in it in a really good way. It uh, for, for, for its size, it really packs a punch. Now, I was trying to trying to think about you know, the typical, what is your book about before we begun? And I could say, well, it's about this notion of Gaia. It's about nature. It's obviously about the ongoing climate crisis from a philosophical or a sort of a philo philosophy of nature or an integral philosophical angle. Um, but it's also inclusive of big history, uh, the axial ages theory of Carl Jaspers, uh, transpersonal psychology, and some religious stuff in there as well. So to say what this is, book is about, I am going to hand this over to you, Sean, and say, what is this book about? <laughs> oh, James, I was hoping that you would be able to tell me. <laughs> no, you're, you're right. Um, I guess the, the soul of the book uh, is an intuition, a conviction, a, yeah, uh, a felt sense uh, that won't go away, that... Uh, not only the human species, but the life of this planet is at a critical phase shift, uh, mutation uh, to something completely other that, uh, that hasn't been witnessed in its 4.6 billion year history. I mean, I guess we could point to, to similarly qualitative momentous thresholds, the birth of, of life, um, you know, when, when the ball of molten rock that was our earth somehow miraculously, uh, began to self-organize and, and produce the first living cells, which, you know, quickly, relatively quickly became a, a, uh, super thin layer surrounding the planet, the biosphere. It took quite some time for these single cells to get together, complexify, uh, and become complex organisms and eventually give birth to the biosphere as, as we've known it. Um, so that was equally momentous, obviously. Um, we could point possibly to the emergence, if yeah, the emergence of uh, reflexive, self-conscious, uh, symbolically articulating forms of life uh, there's some debate as to you know whether or not humans were the first, but um, certainly once humans emerged, maybe some 300,000 years ago, but possibly our hominin, some of our hominin ancestors, as long as 
a million years ago, or perhaps even further, uh, who were able to um, generate symbolic representations, symbolic embodiments of their felt experience and, and what to them was the meaning of being a living member of this living earth. That was an equally momentous mutation. So we seem to be at, at a similar phase shift now. Uh, and um, it, it has at least you know, two, two sides. On the one hand, it seems to represent the, the, the birth of a new kind of consciousness uh, of the same qualitative order as the emergence of self-reflexive consciousness itself, you know, whether that was 300,000 or, or a million years ago. But on the other hand, it's accompanied by and arguably even being catalyzed by uh, a, an existential threat, not only to our own species, but to the very fabric of complex life in which we're embedded um, on a planetary scale. So this is, this is what the main theme of the book is about. And, um, you know, attached to that, I guess, is the you know, various sub subsets of, of, of questions, um, such as what does it mean to be planetary? Uh, what does it mean to be human? Um, so this is what it's, I guess, generally about. And because of the complexity and the, the, um, the globality, but I'd say the planetarity of this issue, I can only approach it through multiple discourses, multiple uh, perspectives, um, including you know, big history, transpersonal psychology, integral theory, uh, um, comparative religion, and so on. But not only in terms of a multiplicity of perspectives, but uh, trying to grope my way towards at least uh, what could be called a transdisciplinary perspective. So a, a, a way of thinking, of speaking, writing, uh, of meaning making that uh, is able to uh, render the disciplinary boundaries transparent so that we can start to participate more consciously in the deeper structures of meaning uh, out of which the various discourses uh, emerge because we I think we need to or some of us at least who have the privilege the luxury to do so need to uh, develop this kind of transdisciplinary way of thinking uh, in order to do justice to the complexity and momentousness of uh, our particular moment our unique moment so I, I guess I'd say in, that's one way of trying to describe what it's about. Mm-hmm. So do you do you feel I mean in in relation to this transdisciplinary nature of what you're trying to do? Do you feel that the when people sort of hone in on a single discipline to sort of uh, to 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 address an overarching problem, the, you feel maybe that that immediately is going to run into problems which might actually be dangerous for for us in the long run. Yeah, uh, well, I guess, yeah, so if we take, um, if we take the, you know, the real geniuses, uh, and in, in some of the disciplines like Carl Jung in psychology, so he, you know, he styled himself as a, uh, 
as a you know humble empiricist, uh, uh, mm-hmm. a mere psychologist, and so on. But of course, we know in in, in reading Jung that he was constantly he constantly pushed the, the boundaries of his discipline to the point where they uh, intersected with philosophy and theology and and his dialogue with Wolfgang Pauli and physics and so on. So um, I think each discipline, if if it's deepened into sufficiently, uh, starts to become transparent to other disciplines. Um, so, I, I, so I think it's fine to start from a, from a particular discipline. But if we go deep enough, we'll, we'll inevitably uh, want to and need to enter into dialogue with other disciplines, uh, particularly around these so-called boundary concepts or boundary issues, the, the, the fundamental sort of paradigmatic assumptions, uh, the root metaphors that structure every discipline. Once we get down to that level, then, then we start to uh, participate in, in a deeper transdisciplinary field of meaning. And this this makes possible true dialogue uh, between the disciplines and uh, you know, opens up the possibility for um, for a way of thinking and speaking that is not tied to any one discipline that is truly transdisciplinary. And this and this is what um, various forms of integral thinking try to do, as you know, uh, whether it's in the form, you know, with Jean Gebser or Ken Wilber or Sri Aurobindo or the many integral thinkers alive today. Mm-hmm. Okay, I mean, leading out from Jung as, as someone we we spoke about a little bit before and you've now brought in, I will have to ask you the hermetics question. So you can place three thinkers living or dead into a room uh, and listening on the conversation. Who do you pick? Would would Jung be one of those or would? Oh, I'd be honored. Yeah, it'd be great if Jung were there. Um, yeah, who else? Uh, well, Jung, uh, just my, in terms of my own sort of spiritual mentors, I guess it'd be Jung, uh, Hegel, uh, and uh, Shirobindo, I guess. Jung, Hegel, and Orobindo. Mm-hmm. It's an extremely intellectually expansive room. Mm. Mm. Yes. So there's no clue where that conversation would end up. <laughs> yeah, well, they all shared at least a uh, an intuition uh, of and um longing for we might say wholeness uh for um for a meaning that is to speak in gepsarian terms diaphanous to or transparent to uh the mystery um but uh i think the mystery you know at least for for hegel uh can be named can be can be spoken of coherently in terms of the whole or the absolute for sure bindo also there there are words as long as we don't cling to them uh and, and reduce the mystery but uh, brahman um so whether it's brahman the absolute the whole uh or jung's self you know um they all they all share this what we could say is is an intuition of wholeness which of course begs the question what is the whole and and what is wholeness and this is what would be really fun to to uh, listen in or to participate in a, in a conversation with these three figures, if you and I could do that. Mm-hmm. Do you consider that this notion of the whole as important to how we're beginning to understand our relationship with the earth? That mm. we shouldn't have this sort of fragmentary relationship of self, but there should be, in some sense, we need to draw in this philosophical notion of the whole. 
definitely. So yeah, so when I, you know, when we reflect on this word whole or wholeness, the whole, um, we'll, we'll see that there are various sort of either cognates or sister concepts and intuitions, uh, like the highest uh, or ultimate. Uh, and in traditional language, at least in, in uh, Western traditions, God, um, or in the Platonic tradition, the true, the good, the beautiful. So all, all of these words seem to be pointing to uh, an intuition of, of, I can only use other words now. I mean, this is the paradox of, of uh, trying to speak about these things, but you know, we call it the Tao, right? But uh, the Tao, the whole uh, God, uh, an intuition. Well, Paul Tillich talked about ultimate concern. So his definition of, of religion or the religious impulse or religious feeling was ultimate concern. And of course, that begs the question, well, what is truly ultimate? So here we, you know, when, when we pursue this intuition and these words, we're driven to a series of related questions. You know, what do we value most? Um, what is the whole? Uh, now we can pursue getting back to the whole. Of course, we can pursue that in a purely sort of spatial sense or um, ex extroverted cosmological sense. We can talk about the cosmos as a whole. Um, but um, in pragmatic terms, uh, in sort of existential terms, like, you know, I, I could say, well, the, my whole is my body, is my life, but obviously my body and my life is utterly dependent upon uh, so many things, the food I eat, the people who raised me, the people that I'm in constantly in interaction with, the air that I breathe and so on. So my body is clearly not the whole. Um, now we could extend this all the way to the cosmos and that would be true, but in pragmatic existential terms, I think a case can be made that the, the whole that we ought to be most concerned with at the moment is the planet as a whole it mm. is. And, and I, I like to call the planet Gaia. Mm. We could just say earth we want now. Yes. Earth is dependent on, on the sun. And possibly other things dependent upon the dance of gravitational uh, interactions with all of the other planets and so on. That's true. And, and it's dependent upon the quantum vacuum, you know, out of which everything is arising moment by moment. That's all true. But we can't really do anything about the quantum vacuum uh, uh, or the sun, but we can and, and need to face our uh, existential common groundedness. Uh, you know, as Latour likes to say, we are, we are what earthbound was it earthbound? We are the earthbound. Yeah. So we you know we're, we're Terran beings. We have a common origin, a common destiny uh, with uh, this, this mysterious ball of, of living stuff um that uh, that we call the earth so that's this is what what i've chosen in this book to um focus my attention on in terms of the whole um in seeking for a ground a common ground for the other inflections of what we might mean by the whole in terms of uh, say highest value 
or the divine um, or uh, you know an existential ethical context all of these other possibilities that we need to consider when we pursue the intuition of wholeness or the highest uh, i'm suggesting that uh, we uh, we can do no better and and we are ethically bound i think to to take on this common whole uh, that participates us and in which we participate well i guess you you know one one could quite easily argue that people people might say well what about what 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 is what is value it's entirely subjective but of course almost every single sub well i would i guess you'd argue every single subjective value relies on someone being alive and of course if <laughs> if things go the way they are they, they seem to be in terms of climate change then potentially not many people will be because the thing which is upholding the potential for all value the earth uh will be gone or will be at least uninhabitable i think probably something needs to change in our way of talking about that as if we're the saviors i mean if we keep pushing climate change in the in the way that our effects seem to be then the earth will still be here but it just won't be for us anymore right it won't be our mm -hmm. earth or we won't be able to live with it in that certain sense so i mean perhaps perhaps that idea of the almost like that ownership aspect of the earth of when we talk about the earth as if it's our home like just for us is this why you in the book and of the title of the book have a preference for the term Gaia because it moves us away from that anthropocentric view of we're sort of we're the savior in a way hmm it's a great question yeah um well uh you know as you know the um the intellectual elite and even the mainstream media has has adopted uh, the term Anthropocene uh, for the new geological age that we've we've entered into. Um, you know, which is really striking. You know, the the first geological age in in four point six or four point eight billion years that takes on the name of a single species and and it's us right so <laughs> where the earth has entered the 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 age of the human and uh i mean i i i think there's a really good case for for why that term is coherent i mean there, there's no doubt that um all earth systems now bear the imprint the indelible imprint of the human um the various uh, geospheres, I mean, most notably uh, in our time, the atmosphere, but the whole biosphere, which is unraveling <clears throat> as we speak. Um, all of its organisms have trace elements of you know, persistent organic pollutants and so on, uh, even in the bottom of the ocean and in the Arctic and so on. So the biosphere, the atmosphere, the, the hydrosphere uh, bears the imprint of the human now. And as you were just saying, the fate of, of the rest of the earth community now lies largely in, in the hands of humans in terms of what the human species is going to do uh, over the next, particularly the next decade or so. So there's, there's a real, uh, I think, um, truth to the, the idea of the Anthropocene. At the same time, to me, what this... Um, moment of the ongoing evolution of this planet 
is showing is that what the, the meaning of the human is being revealed as being integral to the life of this planet, not only in the sense that we now have a, a coherent story uh, of human origins um, that goes not only you know all the way back to the to the the origins of the of this planet itself. So we know that that humans, like all members of the Earth community, are thoroughly uh, earthly beings. And um, if this age is not to lead to the radical and perhaps permanent impoverishment of life on the planet in the way that you were describing, yes, there would still be a planet of some kind. There would probably still be some kind of life, but life as not only we have always known it, but uh, as mammals have always known it, um, is disappearing in real time, in our time. So if, if we don't halt that, then, uh, yeah, there, there's a sense in which the, the, the human will have spelled the end of uh, the period of the, the richest biodiversity on the planet. It might also entail our own extinction. So, you know, if we if we really take that in, then it seems that the our age is also an age where the human is being called to recognize our not only our origins but our ethical responsibility on a planetary scale to the whole Earth community, and the way that presumably we would manifest that responsibility is to reform our ways, reform our modes of being in the planet in such a way that they are uh, conformal to or in harmony with the ways of the wider earth community, which I call uh, Gaia. Now, why am I, do I prefer Gaia? I mean, uh, Gaia to me, uh, actually, it, it, it does on the one hand offset a kind of dissociated anthropocentrism in the way that you were describing by putting the emphasis on on the on the wide earth community rather than on the human but uh the other reason why i like gaia is that it encourages me and others who who also like this term to feel into the nature of the whole in which we participate as something more than a mere collection of objects, uh, which is still the, the the felt sense that one might get when we speak of Earth systems, let's say. So the, the the dominant way of speaking of the planet as a whole, from a scientific point of view, in our times, is is pretty much through Earth system science or the Earth system sciences, and they're marvelous. I mean, they uh, you know they're. That they are revealing day by day, uh, giving us more and more detailed and nuanced pictures of the the anatomy and physiology of this living planet. But they do so by uh, necessarily through a process of objectification, quantification, uh, and in a sense, reduction to to an impersonal system. And um, you know. 
that's inevitable and useful for the information that that it generates on the other hand it also can encourage the kind of purely instrumental and dissociated relationship that the human has developed toward the rest of the earth community over the modern period throughout the modern period um you know as you know many philosophers have spoken about the 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 uh the evils of instrumental reason. Um, so Thomas Berry, for instance, uh, says that the, the great ethical task of our time is to, is to convert our, what our gaze, our attitude toward the earth community from one that considers it as a collection of objects to one that beholds it as a communion of subjects. And uh, this is, of course, is how uh, indigenous communities and really all communities prior to the modern period more or less considered the world, our world, as a communion of subjects, which is to say that uh, there was no firm dividing line between living and non-living, between uh, personal and impersonal. In a sense, there was nothing truly impersonal uh, in the experience of the world, insofar as what we call inanimate objects uh, were considered to have a kind of internal life of their own. Uh, we still see this in even in hypermodern Japan, for instance, where there are temples to to used uh, sewing needles, where instead of just throwing out the sewing needle, the sewing needles are brought to a temple and they're, they're uh, reverently uh, thanked and uh, offered to the temple because even a sewing needle, which has performed this task for, for humans throughout its life, has its own kind of spirit. So all of this to say that um, to me, the word Gaia, which comes from the Greek, obviously the Greek goddess uh, Gaia, recognizes that earth has uh, interiority has a soul, we could say the world has a soul. Now, what do we mean by a soul? I mean, we could just say at the very least, what it means is that the earth and everything in her, I will say, has intrinsic value, has interiority, not merely use value, but intrinsic value, interiority, uh, which invites an attitude of, uh, participation and mutuality, what Martin Buber, you know, called an I-thou relationship rather than an I-it relationship. So this to me is, is one of the, the virtues of using the word Gaia is that in, instead of simply the earth, I mean, I love the earth, the word earth is great, uh, particularly when you say earth, not only the earth, but just earth. Um, but um, uh Gaia can, can do more work in the direction of um, encouraging us to uh, find alternatives to the, the disembodied, objectifying, instrumentalist gaze, which uh, has become so endemic to the dominant worldview and that, you know, that I still participate in an act even in my daily life. So that was that was a bit long, but no, no, it's great. I mean, uh, the, the, I have I have sort of this question which I've asked many guests who are dealing with this topic, which you know, I, 
And I think none of them have ever said this is exactly why they think this is. But, you know, as 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 your title puts it brilliantly on the threshold, you know, we're we're closing in, you know, when it's not it's not thousands of years in the future and we've worked it out in due time we're on the we're at the the limitrophy in a way we're on that point where it's like okay you need to make a decision now right you haven't got time anymore and the funny thing i guess that's peculiar that's happening as you said the the mainstream media has taken up on this uh academics have taken everyone everyone really knows about it and everyone knows their place within it in a way and everyone can see the statistics and the results of it and everyone knows the reality of it i guess in a certain sense of well if we keep doing what we're doing then things aren't going to work out very nice and none of us are going to be able to have a place to live and many of us probably won't live so the question really is why why don't we change why don't we change you know why why do we still just not do anything and the things that we do do seem to be almost veils to just make ourselves feel better even though they haven't really changed too much mm-hmm. yeah yeah well i mean I'd, I'd love to hear why why you think <laughs> maybe <laughs> um you, uh, i personally i, I personally I'm, think if, if you're if you're genuinely asking i personally I think am. that years of what would be considered modernity has compressed the individual's time preference shorter and shorter and shorter and certain societal changes have made us no longer you know we perhaps at a certain point we used to think we used to think what would my great great grandchildren want and then maybe our grandchildren and then our children and now what do i want and now it's no longer what do i want in 50 years it's what do i want now so i'd say our time preference just on a societal level has been completely compressed so that all we care about is and and i think and i'm not blaming people for this because we're in a a lot of people in the west are in a very uh, malicious and coercive capitalist world where you're like i've got to pay my rent you know this month Mm -hmm. so ultimately you don't want to be thinking about is it are my actions going to you know are they complicit in (laughs) destroying the environment because you've got personal worries to think about but i think that would be my theory on that i guess how about yourself yeah no i like that i i agree with that um yeah i mean we we've certainly been uh i say the we who's the we um well those of us who are well everybody's embedded in one way or another in in uh industrial growth society and in in late capitalist society which uh where as you know um everything is commodified um, and is uh, uh, organized in a way that, you know, benefits materially and in terms of power, uh, it's very unequal in the way of who it benefits in terms of, of, uh, of power. Yeah. So, uh, we're conditioned, yeah, we're conditioned to, I mean, on the one hand, we didn't evolve to have long-term views. I mean, as, as mammals, <clears throat> our time sense, you know, evolved to be sensitive to, on the one hand, the immediate environment or to circadian rhythms uh, or to uh, the, the, uh, the patterns of uh, repeating seasons. Pretty much that was it. 
Um, and then, you know, eventually certain, uh, a certain group of individuals in, in, in all societies, uh, learned to track much longer cycles, usually in, in, in connection with the stars, but these were ever recurring cycles. And, and I guess what started to change dramatically in the modern period is that the rate of change in terms of uh, the effects of human on their built environment, uh, in terms of um, uh, changes in patterns of cultural production, so both material and cultural production, the rate of change started to accelerate and, and you know, as you know, uh, has gone exponential in our time. So, uh, and, and that has been catalyzed by, amplified by, encouraged by, of course, capitalism and industrial growth society, which depends upon uh, the increasing rate of producing new stuff um, to, you know, to be consumed, to be bought and sold in order to continue to enrich, you know, those who are, um, you know, who privately own and control the means of production and so on. So yeah, that, that there's so much momentum to industrial growth society, uh, which is embedded uh, in just the modern mentality, which is forward-looking. That um, yeah, we 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 didn't evolve to have the perception of. Uh, the kind of time pressures that we're experiencing now, or to anticipate changes on the order of the planet on, on a planetary scale, or we could even say like cosmological, cosmologically significant time events, such as the, the changing of a geological age. We, you know, we're the first mammals actually to, to experience a, the shift of a geological age, certainly the, the first humans. So we didn't evolve to have that organ of perception. And this is what we're being called to, to do now. Um, and it's paradoxical because we're, as you say, we've been so conditioned to, for our attention to be limited to, uh, you know, if you're, if you're one of the uh, 1% to the next quarter in terms of the market and so on, uh, or like most of us just day to day, or week to week or month to month, but, um, you know, how, how are we going to do this when we're, we're so conditioned? And yet this is what we're being called to do. So there, there's this paradox, paradoxical tension. I mean, right now, as you know, this movie, Don't Look Up is, is really, you know, is, uh, every, so many people have seen it and, and, uh, it's in the news and so on. And, um, and, and it portrays, well, uh, you know, as a satire, this uh, sudden, you know, as the French say, prise de conscience, a kind of like galvanization of the collective consciousness on the part of people who are normally only understandably preoccupied with their, their, their private lives, their private sphere, the day to day or the week to week. And suddenly they're, they're being, we are being forced to look up to uh, an event, the nature of which the earth has not seen in 66 million years. So um, yeah, this is the paradox uh, of our time. Um, and it's not, 
clear that will, I mean, obviously we are doing it. You and I are doing, many people are doing it. And maybe that's, you know, uh, maybe that's enough in one sense. I mean, if, if what's being called for is the, is the, the emergence of a new organ of perception on the planetary scale, in one sense, it, it has happened. It's happening. Will it be enough to allow us to avert the worst case scenario? That's far from clear. But um, that's where we are. Yeah. Okay. Well, I guess this, this this notion of you know uh, like a compression of time in the sense that many of us just live in the next hour, the next day, um, would be a good place to bring in. You know, you you talk of big history. Um, so, what is big history, and what role does it play in in this? You know, the initiation you speak of, and how can it sort of help us? Uh, you know, in the next ten, twenty, fifty years. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, so big history. Um, is uh, a movement that is devoted to, you could say, inserting the human story or human history within the the uh, wider uh, context of uh, the the history or the evolution of the cosmos, and particularly uh, the the evolution of of Earth. Um, so it's big in that sense, and. Um, no, there are, there are many examples of big historians. That the the field was uh, sort of initiated by uh, uh, Christensen. Actually, I can't remember his first name now. Um, David Christensen. But um, uh, but there are, there are many examples of big historians, I and mean, we could think of even Carl Sagan with the the Cosmos series, uh, who um, you know famously. Put the 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 whole time span of the evolution of the cosmos on on a calendar year, and showed that you know the whole human story, uh, and the, takes place on on you know the last days December thirty first of that calendar year, um, pretty close to midnight sort of thing you know. Isn't and, it and like six six minutes or something like that? Geez, I am tr- trying to remember exactly. It's, un- it's, it's, it's shockingly Actually, I think it's, short. I think it might even be six seconds or something. Well, yeah, I certainly, if you take the whole, the whole modern period or, or the historical period, mm-hmm. yeah, it's very, very short. Um, I mean, I, I've gone on these um, uh, Gaia walks with uh, one of your compatriots, a dear friend of mine, Stefan Harding at Schumacher College. And uh, he takes his students and, and people on these walks along the coast of Devon, a 4.6 kilometer walk, uh, which stands for the 4.6 billion years of uh, the history of, of this planet. And, you know, you're walking for a couple of hours. Um, and, um, you know, for, for the first hour or so, there's really not much happening. And, but he'll stop occasionally and tell you, okay, at this point, you know, we have the first nucleated cells and you just keep on walking. And at a certain point, things really start accelerating mm. after, particularly after the Cambrian explosion 500 million years ago. But uh, it's not until you get to the very end of the walk in, in Dartmouth, where um, he takes out a measuring tape and you've got just the last like three or four centimeters of that 4.6 kilometer walk. And that's the whole historical period, basically. So that's an example of big history. And um, 
you know, one one response would be as Carl Sagan used to, you know, to talk about the billions and billions of galaxies and so on, <clears throat> is is to perhaps give a sense of in, the insignificance of the human, uh, both uh, spatially and temporally within the, this larger history of the cosmos. And that's true from a purely quantitative point of view. But it's clearly not true from an existential point of view, or I would say qualitative point of view, uh, on this planet, at least since the human actually, as, as we see with the idea of the Anthropocene, the human represents that phase or moment of Gaia that is deciding, whether consciously or unconsciously, the fate of the rest of complex life on the planet. So, you know, um, most big history, I think, is still mesmerized by the, the, the quantitative vastness and focuses on, on um, understandably, on these large timelines. Um, but other big historians like uh, Brian Swim, Thomas Berry, uh, we could even say Théard de Chardin, was uh, a great is another sort of lineage of big history that we might say is deep history instead of big history and this is one that from the start recognizes that we're not only dealing with quantities and and collections of objects organized in systems we are dealing with that but we're dealing with uh, something that is from the beginning and sold or intrinsically meaningful full of meaning and that, that produces meaning right from the beginning, whether that beginning is the Big Bang or the smallest scale of, of a subatomic particle, there's some kind of, of soul dimension or interiority or, or, or consciousness or prehension, uh, to speak in Whiteheadian terms, goes all the way down spatially and temporally. And the thing about our moment now is that we are at that moment, at least on this planet, which is the only one that we have any direct acquaintance with, where that, that dimension of meaning or soul or intrinsic value is, is being raised to the level of consciousness on a planetary scale. It's always been there, of course. I mean, the first cells had it. Uh, whales have it. I mean, all all members of the Earth community have it. But here we are in, in this beginning of 2022 uh, in the accelerating phase of what I call the Guy Anthropocene, which I prefer personally to Anthropocene, um, where we are being called to wake up together to what has always been the case, but which is now uh, come to a moment of reckoning, uh, which can also be a moment of celebration, but a moment of, of reckoning that is calling for all kinds of things, for justice on a planetary scale, for, for courage, for mourning of what's already lost and what we're bound to lose. So this is our moment, uh, which <clears throat> uh, I think big historians have a responsibility to highlight uh, along with the, the merely quantitative vastness of the story. Uh, I, I'm encouraging them to emphasize the depth dimension and more particularly to take that depth dimension, that qualitative dimension uh, to the point where 
we we recognize that there's a moral imperative as deep historians or as big historians as any kind of public intellectual or uh, professor anybody who has a voice there there's an ethical imperative now i think to uh take a stand on matters that uh uh will bear upon the fate of the earth community you know there's yeah mm-hmm. i mean that's very interesting because it seems that the planetary initiation that you're speaking of i mean one thing that that i quite liked when uh you know we were speaking of jung and it's actually strange that jung's being brought back in here when i spoke to murray stein about jung um he said near the end of our conversation that that in a way um i don't i have to be a bit vague here because i don't want to misquote him but he said in a way uh jungian practice is an initiatory tradition you know you are being mm. initiated into something um that isn't just how it's often seen as just this psychological thing and it seems that this planetary initiation that you're writing of and speaking of is very much existential in exactly the same way that people are going to have to deal almost with uh some form of like Gaian trauma mm-hmm. where they have to overcome something which they don't want to see and have to admit to a lot of things they probably don't want to to deal with would I be on the right track there or have I stretched that a bit too too far no I think no I think so for sure yeah I mean um Jung um you know on the one hand stressed the the uh the importance of the individual and 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 how um, the transformation of the collective, if there were to be such a transformation, needed to happen with the individual. And we each need to go through our own uh, initiation or individuation, as he called it. Um, on the other hand, Jung also saw, especially toward the end of his life, that that something was happening on a planetary scale. I mean, he uh, you see it clearly in his late his late work, Answer to Job, or Modern Man in Search of a Soul, or um, in, uh, and so on. Um, but, and he even apparently saw on his deathbed, you know, he scribbled this little note with a, a strange line, a waving line, and, and the words, the last 50 years of humanity, um, which would have brought us to around 2012, strangely enough. Um, so he saw that there was something happening on a planetary scale that that involved uh, a kind of collective near-death experience. And, um, you know, yes, we're all going to, we are all in a sense going through it now, and those who will be here will go through it, but obviously in different ways. I mean, I, I feel, you know, I'm obviously I'm extremely privileged that I haven't had to, and for now I don't have to worry about you know, going hungry. I mean, that could could change, right? Uh, the supply chain could could uh, could uh, be disrupted. We could have uh, you know a fairly precipitous collapse of of industrial civilization as we've known it. In which case, I may might very well go hungry. But for now, I'm I'm part of of a very you know privileged class of people who don't have to worry about hunger or um, you know a roof over my head. Uh, or being shot at, and so on. So, if if things continue along the path of uh, collapse and, and unraveling, um, 
the people who are already suffering now are going to suffer more and more who have not been suffering are going to suffer more. And many of these people won't have the, uh, understandably, the luxury to, to contemplate what's going on on a planetary scale. They'll be preoccupied with their own, their own existential uh, dilemma. So, I, you know, that's why I really think those of us now who do have the luxury and the privilege uh, have the, a deep ethical responsibility to turn our awareness, our discourse, um, our you know behavior in the world to the to the best of our ability, in the direction of cultivating a uh, a, a truly planetary awareness, a planetary ethic that, however we're positioned, might have some kind of beneficial effect on policy on the communities in which we're embedded uh, and so on to make what looks like an inevitable collapse, uh, a softer landing. And hopefully also um, create sort of cultural seeds or arcs that will survive the transition that will cross the threshold and, and allow for uh something to regrow something to regenerate on the other side that will be more consciously and coherently in harmony with the ways of gaia uh and uh yeah so this is this is um are you uh, are you optimistic hmm, hmm. um uh on a feeling level uh, in terms of uh well in terms of do i yeah do i see us i, I still feel that it's possible to avoid the worst case scenario put it that way <laughs> okay. and the worst you know the worst case scenario is just you know precipitous fall a uh, precipitous collapse and uh, unstoppable unraveling of complex life um uh, I think it's, I feel that, yeah, I'm, I'm, I don't know about optimistic, but I'm, uh, I still feel it's possible to avoid that. And, um, uh, but I, I am increasingly uh, convinced that, yeah, that we are, that we are um, heading for collapse of industrial civilization how quickly that'll happen, whether we can make it a soft landing and have something more regenerative on the other side. I think, uh, you know, we don't know. I, I think it's still possible. And, and um, but, you know, as you know, from reading the book, um, even if somebody could show me a kind of precognitive video showing that it's not possible and that, that it's all for naught, uh, I, I wouldn't believe that it's all for naught because I, I, I'm, I'm convinced that certain things are intrinsically good and true and beautiful and worth doing regardless of how they might uh, turn out in the future. Um, so, you know, the, this is this is really the ethical stance, the psycho-spiritual ethical stance that I was aiming for uh, in this book, particularly toward the end, is to help myself and those who might have similar intuitions contact and stabilize a form of, of consciousness that can find, uh, you know, the necessary 
courage, determination, even joy in continuing to walk forward in what appears to be an, uh, an ever darkening, dark night, you know, ever deepening dark night of the soul. Mm. Um, yeah. But I think we would need, we would need another session to, to uh, uh, explore this together. I think, mm -hmm. I, I, I think your podcasts are only an hour, right? Well, uh, we can, we can keep going. I do have one, one sort of question that we could possibly make it the final question, but it's quite, um, it might be expansive because at the moment I'm in the process of reading, uh, um, facing Gaia by Latour and doing yeah. episodes on um, Latour's work, and you know, I imagine really in contemporary philosophy, he's one of the few that's really using that term, which is a, mm. it's a strange, strange term to use, really. And uh, but in your book, you you do have a a critique of Latour's conception of Gaia, so I'd, I'd I'd just be interested to hear your thoughts on yeah. where where you think perhaps he's gone yeah. A well, bit first of all, well, first of all, I I, I uh... I am delighted and I applaud uh, Latour for the courage that it must have taken for him to um, adopt that term. Uh, I really think it, uh, you know, it's brilliant that he did did so and, and truly courageous. Um, you know, he has uh, encouraged people, you know, philosophers, thinkers in general, um, who might not otherwise have done so to, to, uh, think in terms of Gaia um, to, to take on this complex and, and existentially charged task of thinking through and with this planetary moment. So I, I'm profoundly grateful uh, to him for that. And, you know, I, I obviously he's brilliant um, and he's so clever uh, in his writing Um but I do, I do, yeah, I did find myself uh, taking issue with uh, several of his statements, uh, particularly to me, seems like a, um, what, a, um, a, I was going to say irrational in the sense of a pre, an a priori uh, uh, commitment to, uh, or against commitment against any kind of thinking or discourse that appeals to wholeness uh, or the whole or system. Uh, you know, this is, as you know, this is very, very popular at, ever since Kierkegaard actually uh, reacted to, uh, um, to the, the lectures uh, by one of Hegel's students that, that he was attending and that, you know, that, that anti-Hegelianism, um, that we see beginning with Kierkegaard, well, Schopenhauer actually, but Kierkegaard in terms of, of a rejection of uh, the impulse to systematize, to think in terms of systems. And we see it particularly after the Second World War, understandably, because of the contamination of, of uh, the idea of the whole uh, by the experience of totalitarianism and, and fascism. So I get it. It's understandable. And I, I think it's a healthy, uh, uh, it's a healthy attitude to uh, keep in mind. It's, it's a necessary critique to consider, you know, as Adorno said, the whole is the non-truth. Well, I get that. And I think that's, that's certainly true of certain um, inflections of the concept of the whole uh, certain expressions of the impulse towards wholeness. 
On the other hand, um, if we're talking just about Earth or Gaia, you know, the 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 sciences to which Latour appeals and uh, with which he's in such creative dialogue are called Earth System Science. <laughs> no, the 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 science is is based upon the uh, conviction that Earth is a system or at least is a system of systems. So a system is really just, you know, what is a system? A system uh, is <clears throat> uh, a concept we used, use for a conviction, an experience and a conviction that whatever it is we are considering is coherent. Uh, it doesn't mean that it's, um, you know, coherent in every last detail uh, or that the the for, however we formulate the coherence is is static and can never be revised, but there is a conviction that what we are considering is coherent. Uh, it is a whole. Uh, it makes sense as a whole that we need to consider it in its wholeness. And of course, this begs the question: Well, what is the whole? Yeah. Um, and um, you know, we need to constantly interrogate our, our, ourselves on is this really the whole are we leaving something out um are we reducing the complexity of what we're looking at and, and this is where the critique of of a kind of totalitarian holism i think is necessary and useful but latour as far as i can see takes that critique and and just makes it a blind assumption uh that there is no such thing as a system Gaia is not a system, he says. Um, and he also says that, you know, he, he diminishes and denigrates the idea of, of uh, the soul, the world soul. Gaia, Gaia is not a system, doesn't have a world soul. Well, why? You know, what, what I'd like to know why. What is, what is the justification for that claim? He, he's free to have these convictions. That's fine. But uh, they just seem incoherent to me and also not, not, um, not particularly helpful. Hmm. Do you think it's important to understand Gaia as a, a, in a systematic sense, as a means to sort of prod at the whole? Yeah. So I mean, the so in terms of um, yeah. <clears throat> um, so when we speak in systems, we're obviously using in, in Jung's terms the thinking function. We're, we're using conceptual uh, categories, uh, and. Um, yeah, I mean, we, 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 we need to do that uh, if we're going to think coherently. So if, if, if coherence is, is a value that we treasure, uh, if we are striving for coherence in our uh, thinking and in our discourse, then I think as Hegel rightfully saw, um, our thinking and our discourse needs to take the form of a system. So only, only in the form of a system can discourse or thinking uh, be truly coherent. Now, if you don't mind incoherence, then you don't need a system. You know, <laughs> okay. So we can think incoherently, and and uh, and in that way, we don't need a system. That's thinking. <clears throat> but we can also uh, uh, there are different modes of consciousness and discourse that are not uh, tied to to concepts that are more metaphorical or more symbolic. Um, we could make the distinction between also prose and, and poetry or the, the, the prosaic mode and the poetic mode. Or as 
McGilchrist does uh, in in his uh, work, you know, between right and left brain uh, modes of uh, of meaning making, for instance. So the the systems view, the thinking view, uh, is one necessary mode, but the 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 poetic, the symbolic is another, or the aesthetic, we could say, is also uh, equally necessary for me. Um, and in some ways is actually primary. It's um, certainly existentially primary. Uh, if, if the aesthetic mode as Whitehead recognizes actually goes all the way down to, to the elemental uh, occasions, the, the drops of experience, each of which is a, is a, is a prehension or a, or a form of feeling, um, then uh, you know, if we honor that mode and see it as equally necessary, then uh, speaking in terms of systems to me is not enough. Uh, I, I, I need to speak also in terms of, of um, souls and persons uh, or spirits um, or, or other, you know, other words that we could give that allow me to uh, experience my world and, and what inhabits the world, not as a collection of objects, as Thomas Berry says, but as a communion of subjects. I mean, that's actually speaking conceptually, but it's a way of speaking conceptually that, that points us in the direction uh, of the more uh, poetic or symbolic or enchanted mode uh, of being in the world. So Latour seems to reject, you know, both the conceptual uh, uh, route toward wholeness via system, as well as the poetic mode uh, towards uh, enchantment. Mm. And I don't know why, you know, why, I mean, I can see why he might want to do it. I, I don't know why he wants to do it personally, but it's certainly in line with the, the prejudices, the dominant pre prejudices of the academic elite, you know, which reject all forms of, of totalization on the one hand, uh, and also uh, reject uh, taking spirit and soul seriously. Well, he, he's, he's also Catholic, so I don't know where the Catholic Church would stand on the earth having a soul. I don't know if that's a... Oh, soul of the world? Yeah. I don't know if that's compatible with uh, that's a good Catholicism. Question. Yeah. So that, it might be a practical that's means that's sort of related back to the, the mystery. Yeah, that's, a, that's a, good, a good question. Well, Teilhard de Chardin was Catholic too. Mm. And uh, uh, even rocks had a soul for him. Mm. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know enough about the, unfortunately, don't know enough about the theology yet to really comment on whether or not, I mean, you know. They're, they're yeah, he was, he was, it's true. He, he would be considered heretical in, in some circles. So yeah, there, there are, there's a big C and small C Catholic, I guess. <laughs> uh, yeah. And, and well, the Latour is also on the sort of the smaller C because he's also most definitely not sort of orthodox in that sense. So there. That's true. That's true. Hmm. But does that make sense to you? What I just said about oh, Latour? I mean, you're. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and, absolutely. I mean, that. It's also not so much a problem. I mean, it's an interesting way of writing about things, but it's something that crops up in his earlier books that uh, a sort of a philosophical move away from a distrust of coherence equally is a bit tyrannical because then you're left like stranded in the ocean, right? Like, well, we need we need something to grasp onto, you know, which is the problem I had with him. Um, not a problem, but it was an interesting, like I said, it's an interesting way of philosophizing in his book, um, We Have Never Been Modern. 
mm. which which you know theorizes that things like you know terms such as conceptual terms such as capital E economy or nature or mm. these things we've now revered these as gods but they aren't actually these things which is you know it's very it's very interesting but as you're doing that you're removing the anchors which allowed you to to move right. around and sort of see where you are so soon okay well once we've deconstructed this sort of agreed upon capital n conception of nature well okay but what are we now left with and then it, mm. it as you said you can quite quickly end up in incoherence from that so you have to mm. you have to play it quite carefully and i guess your critique would be that it doesn't you don't always end up somewhere where you you have something to really work with. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and um, so yeah, that's why I, I'm you know in, in recognizing that we may not be able to get to any kind of, of consensus philosophically uh, on these issues. We can at least agree pragmatically and existentially about what I call the concrete universal is, you know, mm. uh, Gaia, this planet. I mean, uh, just in purely pragmatic existential terms, um, it's something that we have in common. And and the common is, is what defines the universal, right? Uh, which is, a, you know, which we can approach either as system uh, uh, or as... Uh, something else something else something that, else that's yeah. the problem we're talking about right yeah 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 no i can mm -hmm. completely sympathize um well that seems um seems like a we've covered a lot of the book is there anything in the text that you, you feel we haven't covered that you'd like to to add in um not really i mean there's so many you know directions we could go in um you know i i I appreciate your interest in the text. I appreciate, uh, you know, I'm grateful that uh, we had this time together. And um, yeah, I, 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 uh, I just hope we have another opportunity to continue the conversation. Well, yeah, would you, I mean, there, there, is, there is much more to talk about in the book. Would you like to come on for like a part two about the book? Oh, sure. That'd be fun. Okay. okay. Um, I guess we should say where, whereabouts. I mean, it's published by Revelor under the imprint of... In uh, uh, integral, inter integral imprint yeah which is under or within Revelor within revelor so if you want to buy the book uh i assume it'll be well it'll definitely be on revelor's website and i assume yeah. it'll also be in all those other nefarious places which if you bought it from then they're not going to help the cause we've been talking about so that, that's true yeah. so yeah um your local bookstore can can certainly order it mm. yeah exactly. yeah um but I mean, one question as well that I always like to ask is: Are you are you working on anything else at the moment? Um, I well, I mean, I just finished a translation of a long essay by my mentor and, and friend Edgar Morin. Um, I just finished that, but um, no, right now I am lying uh, fallow, uh, and I'm concentrating on my uh, Japanese daily Japanese study um and waiting until yeah until i get some promptings about uh what uh if anything would be worthwhile to to write that mm -hmm. sounds good that sounds like a nice place to be <laughs> yeah <laughs> well sean Co sean kelly sorry mm -hmm. thanks very much thank you james take care